Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Everybody and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am super excited to be hosting today. I haven't been here for a month, and I'm even more excited because I'm going to be back next week hosting as well, and we have a lot to get through, so I'm going to stop with the preamble and tell you a little bit more about our show. Um, today, we're going to be talking about using your tax refund for student loan payments, um, some thoughts on that. Also, we're going to talk about visiting colleges and office hours um, and evergreen and any of our new listeners or listeners who are juniors or even younger are probably starting to think about doing college visits, so we're going to talk through that. But before we get to all of that, uh, there's a thing out there called the old SAT versus the new SAT conversion charts, and many of you may not even be aware that this exists, or if you do, you may not know much about it. So I'm really excited because we have Megan Studenbeck. Uh, Stubendeck, I pronounced it wrong after all that, that practice, uh, who is Senior Director of Instruction at um, our partner, or our trusted partner, who we work with a lot, Arbor Bridge. Uh, hi, Megan. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and apologies on the mangling of your last name after all that effort, but... Um, <laughs> Like you said, it happens a little bit frequently for you, so sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay, not a problem at all. All right, so what, I mentioned it in your intro just that we're talking about the old SAT, new SAT conversion charts. Um, why don't, I'd love to take a step back, though, but what does it mean when we talk about the old SAT versus the new SAT? Yeah, so the what we call the new SAT debuted in March 2016. Um, so when we talk about old SAT, we're referring to anybody or any test that was taken of the SAT before that date, and new SAT refers to a test after that date. Um, and so because we're talking a little bit about conversion charts, it also might be a little bit helpful just to point out that um, that also affects the way the scores are done. So old SAT kids uh, always got three scored sections of the exam. They had a reading score, a writing score, and a math score. And each of those scores was out of 800 points. So the top score you could get was a 2,400. On the new score, it's actually different. What they did is they took the reading and writing and collapsed it into just one score. So now you get a score for reading writing and a second score for math. So again, these are both out of 800 as they were in the old test, but now the highest you can get is a 1600. Uh, so any parents who also might be listening, you might be thinking back, oh, I did 1600 SAT. Um, that old 1600 is back again. Right. Yes, exactly. But back when I took the SATs, it was the 1600. Right. So then for a while that went away. Um, for those of you whose kids are a little bit younger, you may not even know that the, the SAT had changed because it looks the same. Uh, so I wanted uh, to really kind of talk through that. So with that in mind, what is a conversion chart? And probably even more to the point, why do we even need a conversion chart? What's that about? Yeah, so on the most basic level, uh, a conversion chart just takes a new SAT score um, from any section and converts it to an old score, or you can also do it vice versa. If you have an old SAT score, you can convert it to a new SAT score. Um, for anyone who's listening, um, on a side note, if you want to know where to find these conversion charts, the College Board, which writes the SAT and creates all of the scoring scales for the SAT sections, actually released a really handy app that you can download. Everyone can download it. It's free on the internet. Uh, it's called the SAT score converter. And all you do is you download that in to your phone. You can plug in your scores, either new or old, hit a button, and it will do the conversion for you. So really simple, easy uh, chart to use. Now, like you said, the bigger question is, why do we even need this handy app? And the reason is that on the it's like, and that's the, it's a really good question, because really on the surface, it seems like you wouldn't need one. If the scores are still out of 800, can't you just say, yep. if I got a 600 on the math of the old SAT, I'd get a 600 on math on the new SAT. And you'd think that, but it's actually kind of deceptive. 
even though the scale stayed out of 800, uh, the test itself has radically changed. Um, there are a couple of big changes that happened to the test. The first thing they did is they got rid of what was called the guessing penalty um, when they used to deduct points. If you answered the question and got it wrong, now that doesn't mm-hmm. exist anymore. They also changed a number of the topics that are tested. Um, and then also that decision to sort of combine reading and writing into one score messed up all the scales. So basically what you have is this new result is that no one can really take and make a really easy comparison between old and new SAT scores. It'd be like, I guess the best example might be, um, you know, trying to take a, a student who got a B in basic algebra in ninth grade mm-hmm. and then comparing that to a B in advanced biology with a senior. Those are on the surface, it's still an, a letter grade, and they both look like Bs, but those are totally different courses with different scales. You can't really say that they're equal. Um, right. So, in fact, the College Board itself has basically said, like, to everybody, they've warned everyone, universities included in their admissions departments, that they're not supposed to blindly look at a new and old score and just compare them straight up. Um, and so the only valid way to actually make a comparison is to use a conversion chart like that app. Got it. So that's kind of how it's meant to be used, right? To help them really understand this is what this would have been on the old test. And what's your sense, though? Do you think that's how they're actually being used? Um, or do you even think they're being used at all? Yeah, so there's a couple of different hints. I think the first thing to point out about this bigger question is um, how the colleges actually are supposed to use it when, when the colleges are looking at the scores. So there's one way, you know, for us as, as parents or students um, or our counselors out there to be looking at scores and looking at a student and comparing them to ultra new, it's really the universities and their admissions departments that have to sort of do the hard work because what's happening right now for the next couple of years is that often in their applicant pool for a given year, they might get half the kids who took the old SAT because those kids loved the old SAT. If that is yep. even possible to love an SAT, <laughs> uh, they love the old SAT. Questionable, yes. <laughs> exactly. They took it, they got it out of the way, and so they're submitting old scores, but then there are kids who took the new SAT and are submitting new. And how do these universities compare them? Because one of the things that we've all noticed, and the College Board has been really frank about this, is that... Um, when you look at the charts, an old, for example, a 670 in math on the old exam is actually equivalent to a 700 on the new exam. And mm-hmm. a 700 on the old exam is a 730 on the new. Um, we sort of refer to this sometimes as like SAT Botox. It kind of mm-hmm. fucks up all of the scores. It makes them all look better on the new exam. Um, so that can be deceptive on the, on the surface. And so we really do hope um, and expect that the colleges are doing this. Um, the college College Board did a lot of outreach with university admissions departments saying, here are the new charts, please use them. Um, And there are hints that that's actually happening. Um, We don't know what each individual university is doing, um, but one thing that we have noticed, the reports that are coming out about um, average SAT scores at various uh, top-level universities are showing that the uh, reported scores, uh, average SAT scores for the old kids who took the old SAT are slightly lower than for those kids who got admitted who reported new SAT scores. So Mm -hmm. that's a pretty good indication they may be using them. But there was right. a story, um, I don't know if you've heard the story about Georgetown's dean of admissions about a year ago. Um, he actually uh, gave an interview, and in this interview, uh, he talked about how uh, students who actually took the new SAT had a leg up in admissions at Georgetown that year because um, their scores looked better. They did better on the new SAT, um, uh, and this is because their scores were higher. And right. so there's like a lot of there's a lot of brouhaha around this statement. But what it can indicate is that at least in this one case of an admissions officer. Um, it can be easy for us as human beings because it's hard to recalibrate the way we look at these mm-hmm. numbers um, that you can, that, you know, you might fall for that Botox on a quick glance. Um, but it's, you know, I do want to stress that and keep in mind for everybody out there is that it does take time for those human perceptions to change, but they will change as more and more scores are coming in, as more and more admissions departments are looking only at or largely at new SAT scores. So um, we do think that that shift is, is, is underway and is, is on the right track. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, what this points out, because, um, you know, like you just said, they're going to be seeing more and more. In fact, the old scores are going to fade away almost entirely within a year or two because mm-hmm. most students will have not had access to it or certainly not been ready to take it. But what it does point to is maybe 
the perception at least that there is increased inflation in test scores and that, you know, back in the day where maybe a 670 would be fine, now that really should be a 700 because a 670 is perhaps actually lower based on the old. So it's kind of, at a certain point, does it sort of become irrelevant um, and you just are left with a new score range for a college? That's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, that's exactly what we expect to happen in the next couple of years. Like you said, the old scores will go away, the new scores will be the new norm, and that will be the only norm that people remember. Um, But it will be pushing that that goalpost is going to keep moving until that happens. You know, based on your time in this industry, I know that when I was at Penn, we saw we the the SAT went through a change. It's going through a change now. Uh, for those people listening now, it is probably irrelevant to them because if they're lucky, they won't be still doing this process ten years from now. But is that your sense that it's kind of an every ten years thing? Is it uh, over time been less frequently than that, more frequently than that? Yeah, when the tests go, these really big changes. The first, yeah, the first major shift to the SAT that actually happened was that shift that happened in uh, 2005, I think is the one you're talking about that was mm-hmm. um, a little bit earlier. And then now we're here just about 10 years down the line, and now it's shifted again. I think that there were specific moments happening in education that made those the turning point. So I wouldn't predict that every 10 years this is going to happen um, unless there is another sh- major shift in the education market that makes the SAT or ACT pivot, really the biggest shift that's going to happen is that within the next five years or so, we do expect because of what the SAT and ECT has said that they are going to move to a computer-based test um, and do away with paper-based testing. And that can, we talk about score shifting, there's a possibility that that could shift scores and performance. So um, we'll have to see how that actually pans out when it happens. Yeah, that would be that will be an interesting change if it does. So what we haven't really talked about because uh, they have not gone through a major change and there aren't old ACT scores versus new ACT scores. But just curious about your thoughts on how the ACT factors into all of this, if at all, from your perspective. Yeah, so this idea of like conversion charts and how to use them, uh, absolutely in admissions departments and even students as they're deciding between should they take SAT or ACT, have to compare how they do on the SAT versus the ACT. Um, and it's important to remember that this has always been difficult um, to do because SAT was either out of 2,400 or 1,600, and the ACT has just always been out of 36. It is a tried and true uh, yep. white bread test. It never changes, uh, basically. So the uh, <laughs> comparison has always been hard. But what the SAT did, um, and the ACT actually, uh, back in 2005 when they went through that first change, uh, both parties actually had a grand peace talk of mortal enemies, basically. They sat down at a table and created something called a concordance table. Um, yep. And a concordance table is just a fancy word for a table that helps you convert an SAT score and an ACT score from 36 to 2400. That was the old one. And it was really easy to use. It was accessible online to anyone who wanted to look at it. Um, the process has been a little bit shakier with the new exam, actually. Uh, what the SAT ended up doing is that they decided to create their own concordance table for the new 1600 exam without talking to the ACT. And it's actually part of that conversion app I mentioned. You can click a second button after you convert your score and it'll convert it to an ACT score for you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say the ACT uh, sort of lost its mind when it found out that the SAT did this alone. Um, They came out and said it was completely invalid because they weren't consulted. Uh, Things have simmered down between the two of them and actually they are in a series of talks now and both SAT and ACT say that they will have a an official new concordance table out by the end of this summer that everyone can use. Got it. And um, we've done many segments on this, so if people are interested, you know, we've talked through ACT versus SAT and how to be thinking about that. I know at Arbor Bridge, you guys offer, um, you can do kind of a, a test to see, right, if, you know, which one it might be the better one for you. You do kind of practice tests. Is that something you guys offer? Yeah, we offer free practice tests, a full-length SAT, a full-length ACT. You can sit down for each of those, uh, either different weeks, different days, different months. Try them out. See how you do. Um, Look both at your score. We analyze those for you and give you a sense of which test is maybe the better fit, uh, given your strengths and weaknesses. 
Awesome. Megan, thank you so much. And um, I just do want to stress the point with our listeners that um, from an admissions perspective, colleges really, really do not have a preference. So it is not take the SAT or take the ACT. So um, there are other organizations out there that offer practice tests so you can figure that out. Arbor Bridge does. Um, We've had great success in our students in, in doing those practice tests and figuring out which test to focus on. My advice to all of you would be to figure out which test is the best test and focus on that rather than trying to take multiple uh, each test multiple times that's just crazy talk and I don't recommend it <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah so if you're interested in that you can always get in touch with Arbor Bridge and tell them that you uh, heard us on the radio show um, Megan thanks so much for joining me today I really appreciate it thanks Beth me too have a great day uh- All right, you too. Next up, we're going to be talking tax refunds, uh, using your student loan payments for tax, uh, using your tax refunds for student loan repayments. Uh, So stay tuned. We'll be back in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you looking to get more from your relationship? Why is it that some people just seem to have a better sex life, better marriage, and a closer, more meaningful relationship? Find out the best-kept secrets and more on The Sexy Lifestyle with Carolyn David. Carolyn David will share insight about the swinging lifestyle and how it has strengthened their love and marriage, not to mention their great sex. Tune in every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Super excited that you are here with us. And I am excited, as always, to welcome my colleague, Kathy Ruby, formerly of the Financial Aid Office at St. Olaf. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. Hey, look at that. I even remembered to pronounce it without the (laughs) S on the end. I know you're impressed. I'm impressed. All right. Uh, So, 
We are talking about now is the time or pretty soon people will start getting tax refunds back. I guess if they're lucky, there's some argument about whether or not you actually want to get a tax refund because that means (laughs) you've loaned the government your money for the year. But we won't get into that today. Um, I know that when I get a tax refund, I am excited to go out and maybe buy a new pair of shoes. But we are (laughs) suggesting that perhaps that is not the best use of that money. Um, But you tell me, why would anyone want to use their tax refund? refund to pay off their student loan versus on something much more exciting. <laughs> like a pair of shoes. Well, like a pair actually, of shoes. So, so let's, let's actually step back for a minute and talk about that tax refund for college students. Um, you know, when a college student gets a tax refund, it's usually not, there's usually nothing they could have done differently. Um, and for most college students, if you've just earned a few thousand dollars and maybe your employer withheld a little bit in taxes, you definitely should be filing taxes. That's the first thing. Sometimes college students wonder whether they should if they didn't make that much money. But if, if anything was withheld, you should certainly be filing to try to get that back from the government. Um, and so then once you have that tax refund, you know, it's a good idea to think about putting it to good use. Um, but we actually decided to talk about making a payment on your student loans for some other reasons. Okay. So why would you want to do that then? Well, and, and I think we chose this topic because we want to teach our listeners some things about their student loans that they may not have known or may not have thought about when their kids are in college or when, when the college students are actually in college. Because my experience is that most college students don't actually know what they've borrowed. Um, they ignore what they're borrowing until they get about, you know, two or three months before graduation and then it suddenly occurs yep. to them that, oh, I borrowed some loans and I need to track down where they are and figure out how to go into repayment. So the first thing is um, we want you to go and look at what you're borrowing. And as soon as you borrow anything, there is an online account created somewhere at a servicer. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is students and parents should be accessing that online account. Now, how you know where that is depends on the type of loan. Um, For federal loans, for instance, my daughter borrowed federal loans and her first disbursement arrived, you know, fall of her freshman year. And a couple Mm -hmm. months later, there was a letter in our mailbox from Nelnet, who happens to be her servicer, that said, okay, your loan's been dispersed. We're your servicer. Go create an online account and look at what your loan is. Now, I knew to look for that letter, um, yep. and I, when I talk to parents, I don't always hear that that letter arrives, but even if you don't get the letter, for federal loans, um, students and parents can log into the National Student Loan Data System, or NSLDS.gov, and they can see who the servicer is for their students' uh, loans. They have to log in using the student's FSA ID if they're looking for a student loan, and the parent's FSA ID if they're looking for a parent loan. Um, so then they can figure out who the servicer is and go to that servicer's website and sign in using your social security number or whatever it takes to get into the account. Um, so there really is no reason to ignore these loans while, while the student's in college. Payments often aren't required, um, but it's still a good idea to make random payments, whether it's from summer earnings or tax refunds, whatever it might be, especially on unsubsidized loans, because that will save you some money in the long run. Right, right. I mean, and it's it really is like if you're chipping away at it with money that you didn't expect to have in your pocket and before you can go out and blow it on a pair of shoes, yes. how cool if you're actually ultimately reducing the amount of money that you'll owe once you graduate. But yes. getting back to what something you just mentioned, um, you said especially on unsubsidized loans. So can you explain to us what an unsubsidized loan is? Yes. So for middle-income families, most of the loans they borrow are actually probably unsubsidized. So for students, that's the federal direct unsubsidized loan. For parents, it's the federal direct plus loan, or it could be a private loan that the student has borrowed or a state loan. Um, Those are all unsubsidized loans. And what unsubsidized means is literally, it's not subsidized. So um, a subsidized loan would be interest-free while your student is in school. Um, because the government's subsidizing you by paying the interest for you. But again, most middle-income families don't qualify for um, subsidized loans. Most of their loans are unsubsidized. So that just means that interest is accruing while the student's in school. 
and then it capitalizes or it gets added to the principal right before repayment. So the good news is it doesn't capitalize every month or every year, but it capitalizes once right before you go into repayment. Um, now, it's easy to figure out how much interest is accruing on your loan. You can, you can just do the math. Um, interest accrues daily, but you can do an annual calculation that's a little simpler. So if you borrow a $10,000 loan and it's unsubsidized and the interest rate is 5%, that means about $500 a year of interest is accruing or about $41 a month. So you should always kind of have that number in the back of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so for one of our presentations, we've actually done the math on this so that we could demonstrate what a difference it can make if you pay the interest as it's accruing. So if you're a student who borrows the full $27,000 over four years for undergrad at 4.5% interest, um, about $3,200 of interest will accrue while you're in school, and then it'll get added to the principal. So then when you go into repayment, you'll have a principal amount of 30250 instead of mm-hmm. that original 27000 So at 4.5% interest, that means your monthly payment is going to be 313 a month for 10 years instead of 279 a month for 10 years. So that's about $35 a month for 10 years. And it doesn't sound like much, but when you're first starting out, $35 a month will actually matter to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's $35 a month more in your pocket, and I think that matters, period. <laughs> or yeah. it should anyway, right? Yes. Yes, and it can really add up. That's the thing. And that's an undergraduate example. Graduate students, of course, the numbers are much bigger. Right, right. But so one thing you mentioned, if you start paying on the interest, how do you, how do you actually make the payment? And does it, is it going to go toward the interest that's accruing or is it going to go toward the principal? So um, ideally, it would go toward the principal, but, but here's the deal. So you sign into your servicer's website, and there's always a way to make an online payment. And, and by the way, when you make an online payment, that doesn't throw you into repayment. It doesn't mean you have to make another payment next month. Got it. If you're in okay. school, you're still in school. You don't have to continue making payments. Um, so you can look on your servicer's website to see if there's any way to direct the payment toward principal. Um, maybe you can write them a letter. It's best if you can direct it toward principal because, of course, then you're not only reducing the principal, but you're reducing the interest that's accruing in the meantime. But most of the time, most servicers take any payment you send and apply it first toward any outstanding interest. So most of the time, you don't get a choice. Um, you'll just have to put it toward interest. But, but don't worry, that's still good. Um, it just doesn't have, it's right. just not as powerful as putting it against principal. Right, because if you put it against principal, then the interest you're accruing is less because it's yeah, accruing on a smaller amount of money. Less. Yep. Exactly. All right. So then are you saying that a person should always put their tax refund or any other kind of found money or windfall toward an outstanding student loan? Well, not necessarily, but it's it's one good thing to do. And and even if you don't have a refund to apply toward your loan, it's a good idea to take a look at what your loan is. But certainly if you have other high interest debt, like a credit card, you should certainly pay that first. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a new college grad, maybe you also need to build up your emergency savings um, because, you know, when the car breaks down or whatever it might be. Um, if you're a college student, another option might be to hold on to the refund and then use it toward the next semester's tuition. And that way you can borrow less, which will reduce, obviously, what you're borrowing and also any fees on the loan you might have borrowed. So that's also an option. Which is Um, basically, I'm sorry to interrupt, but basically what you're suggesting there is you're kind of paying the principal instead of the interest, right? Exactly. Yep. Yep. Because you're you're borrowing it in the first place. Yep. And there's usually like a 1% or 2% fee on loans. So you're saving that too on loans when they're dispersed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, cool. So the point is really just think about what you're doing. Be planful. And, and actually, Beth, it is actually okay to divide it up. So you might put some toward debt. You might put some toward savings. And then maybe you do set aside a little bit for fun or for shoes or whatever it might be. Right. <laughs> exactly. We actually did a segment a few uh Boy, months ago, uh, I don't think it was longer than that, but it could have been a year ago, and we had a a young woman who had borrowed a lot of money to go to college and uh, kind of woke up one day and just realized, oh my goodness, I am like hugely in debt and I need to figure out how to just get rid of this debt. And she went into sort of full-on lockdown mode and really just started plowing, changed everything about her life so that she could 
have as little, you know, sort of payments as possible, and she could really focus on paying down that debt. And it seems to me, and it was really impressive what she was able to accomplish, but if you do some of these things now... And, you know, make some better choices now. She didn't really have any money left over for much fun. And she was okay with that. But the average person is, of right. course, not going to be. And, um, you know, what, if you do some of these things now, maybe you don't find yourself in that situation, uh, you know, later on. Later on, yeah. Line. And it's exactly. about establishing habits and being thoughtful and, and setting your priorities with your money. Um, and I think, you know, I don't think college students really understand completely, some of them do, but the concept of interest and how you're paying more than what you're currently paying at your school because you're going to pay back the loan with interest. So whatever you can do to prepay it will help you reduce the interest that you pay in the long run. Right. And I think I do think one of the big messages that I'm hearing from you here is don't borrow the money and stick your head in the sand and then pull it out four years from now and say, okay, now I have to deal with this. Right. Be aware of what it is you're doing right from the beginning. And, you know, sometimes it's the unknown that is the scariest. And exactly. So, yeah, because actually the majority of students don't borrow too much for college. I mean, we hear in the media about all the people who do, and certainly there are lots of people who do, but there are plenty of people who don't. And, and you're right, knowing what you've got instead of ignoring it, the ignoring it can af- often cause more stress than just right. knowledge is power, right? And exactly. knowing what to expect and ma- being able to plan around that is, is half the battle. Right, is very uh, important. Any other advice o- along these lines that you want to share? No, I mean, I think that... Um, I mean, kind of what we've already talked about, go look up your student loan accounts, take your head out of the sand. Um, There are great student loan repayment tools on the web now. Um, One of the websites we like is bankrate.com, and there's a student loan repayment calculator on the website, so you can... You can put in your amount and your interest rate. You can also see the power of making extra payments. Um, so that's one of the calculators we like the best. Um, but cool. so just take a look at it and see what it's going to look like. All right. Great advice. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. All right. Um, next up, we have office hours, and we're going to be talking about college visits. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you looking to get more from your relationship? Why is it that some people just seem to have a better sex life, better marriage, and a closer, more meaningful relationship? Find out the best-kept secrets and more on The Sexy Lifestyle with Carol and David. Carol and David will share insight about the swinging lifestyle and how it has strengthened their love and marriage, not to mention their great sex. Tune in every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college and most importantly what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application we've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college most into their top choice schools so make the decision to come work with college coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters the one in the envelope that says yes 
Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are into the office hours portion of our show today, and we're going to be talking about really an evergreen topic. It never gets old. Uh, We've done many segments on it in the past, but we're going to do another one today, and that is office visits. Office visits? No, it's office hours and college visits. Sorry. (laughs) And with me today to talk about this is Emily Toffelmeyer, who was a formerly an admissions officer at the University of Southern California and also worked in a few different high schools. Hi, Emily. How are you? Hey, Beth. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a little, uh, I don't know, office hours, office visits, college visits. We're talking college. That's what this is all about. That's what this podcast is all about. So um, we talk a lot about college visits on this show. And like I said, we've done a number of segments. And in fact, next week, we're going to be talking about the overnight college visit. So we're not going to cover that today. But I thought, um, Emily and I were talking before the show, and we thought it might be really helpful to go through kind of just a nuts and bolts sort of approach to college visits. And really talking about all the important things you need to know about this. So, Emily, why don't we start with the, the probably one of the most pressing things on people's mind, which is when do we start these? When do we even start thinking about doing college visits? Yes, I get asked that a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm at the school where I, I don't want to say it's never too early. I mean, there are some ages that probably aren't going to benefit from visiting college campuses, but I do think as early as 10th grade might make sense if you know your family who wants to see a lot of different campuses and a lot of locations. I think there is some value to seeing maybe a couple of your local schools in 10th grade. Um, And then I find most families do the bulk of their visits in junior year and the summer before senior year gives the student a little more time to form their interests, decide what they like and don't like, maybe just be a little more excited about the college process. Um, And this right now, as we're speaking, this part of the year, it's February, is, is a great time to visit campuses. I know a lot of students do have a week off or so in February, depending on what part of the country you live in. Um, so I think whether you are a sophomore, a junior, this is a great time to see some campuses because colleges are still in session and meeting, but a lot of high school students have a time off. And that's, I think, is key to a great visit is going when the college students are actually on campus. Right. What are your thoughts about summer visits, which is a time that a lot of people do tend to visit? And it makes sense, right? That's the easiest time for a student to travel and oftentimes for parent too, especially if you want to go farther away. So I think it's still worthwhile. Um, if you can't make it happen during the school year, summer is a great backup plan. I think the only drawback is the students aren't there. Um, even if yeah. the college has summer school, it's just a fraction of the students. As you probably remember from working yep. at Penn, it, when, if you're a staff member, you love the summer because you don't have to wait in line as long for coffee or food <laughs> and everything's kind of quiet on campus which is great for the staff, but it's not great for you as a future student. You're not really getting the true feeling of what the campus is like when it's at its most bustling. Right, right. But I think your point's a good one. If this is when you can go, go. I think if the choice is go during the summer, don't go at all, we would both say go and uh, and at least see it. Right. Yeah. What about how many you do? I, you know, I sometimes have families, um, they are planning a big trip. They're going to go to a section of the country that has a ton of colleges and they come in and they say, okay, we're going to be there for four days and we're going to try and see 12 schools. My reaction is generally, ah, you might be doing too much. So what are your thoughts on how many schools to visit in a day or a week or, you know, over a specific period of time? I would say two is ideal because you usually do have a morning tour and session and an afternoon option. I think after two, it's just 
it's like going to like two museums in a day. You know, at the end of the day, that's that's enough. You're exhausted. Those are long tours. Right. It's a lot of information. I think you're just kind of wiped out. They're all going to start blurring together. Um, and don't forget just logistics, too. When I worked at USC, we would have families who would come to USC in the morning, go to UCLA in the afternoon or vice versa. And there was barely enough time to fit that in because of the infamous L.A. traffic. Oh, yeah. And the fact that these two schools are pretty far apart from each other. So, you know, a little bit different. If you're in New York City and you want to fit in Barnard, Columbia, and NYU in a day, probably doable if the subways are working in your favor. Um, <laughs> but in other places, you probably just want to aim for two. That's reasonable, kind of a relaxing pace. Um, and maybe just you know, focus on your priority schools, the ones that you really have no idea what they're like in person. Maybe there's some other ones where you feel like a visit isn't quite as necessary. Right. And or, you know, what I've had some families do is they do the official visits and then maybe they drive through another campus that was, to your point, not necessarily a priority or they just figured, well, we're here, we'll go see it. Um, And if they decide that they think it looks really great, I've had them maybe shift things around or even take a trip back to more fully explore that school. But I I am fully on board with your suggestion of no more than two in one day. I do think more than that, and you you are going to get visit fatigue, and you're not going to want to do the ones you have scheduled for the next day because you're going to be overloaded. Um, yeah, nothing wrong with a couple drive-bys. I actually had a similar situation with a family. They were going to see a couple of schools in Amherst, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know I, know, I know your daughter's not really excited about the thought of women's colleges, but FYI, Smith and Mount Holyoke are just a town over. If you want to do a little cruise by, see if she likes the campus. And if you like it, maybe you want to stop in for a visit. Right. And uh, what was the outcome? Did they actually do that? Or <laughs> that is happening this week, so we'll see what happens. All right. All right. It's very exciting. Let's hope they take your advice. All right. So you, you, you've got it nailed. You are, you're planning visits. You're only going to do two in one day. What do you want to do during those visits? What are some things that you would say are, you know, absolutely do or, um, yeah, if you need, if you don't do it, no big deal, but here are some suggestions. All right. Well, we are going to have a great blog post coming out on this soon that our colleague Elise has put together and she's an expert college visitors. She's visited many campuses in her day, so she'll have some great tips in the meantime, though. Um, what you can actually do on the visit is, you know, sign up for as much official stuff as you can. So sign up for the information session. It's usually given by an admission staff member. Sign up for the tour, which is usually given by a current student. So it gives you two different perspectives of the campus experience. Um, some schools will also offer you the opportunity to sign up for sitting in on a class or going to a special departmental information session. So sign up for those if you can. If you want to do those last couple of things and the school doesn't make them easily available online, just call the admission office and ask if you can do those. Um, I think it benefits you to do as much as you can on campus to really make the visit worthwhile, especially if you're trekking across the country. You don't really just want to have one hour worth of visit. You want to spend a little more time there, talk to students. Um, And in addition to that, all the official stuff you can do, I would also say just spend some time casually on campus, like eat at a dining hall or a restaurant or fast food place on campus. Talk to students you see sitting around who look interruptible. Um, And you might have to wait until something like an open house or admitted student day to see inside of a dorm or residence hall. But that's okay. There's usually great virtual tours online. And you can get a lot of information just by walking around on campus, even if it means you're not able to enter into every building. Right. And I always do love the suggestion of talking to current students because I rarely see students actually do it. Uh, I do see sometimes parents doing it. Students, if that's going to really embarrass you, you can always just go into the bookstore where your mom has that conversation. But I do really think there's a lot of value in talking to current students. And I what you should find if is that they'll be happy to tell you about their school. And usually uh, you can get some good information from them that won't be vetted by the admissions office because you do have to keep in mind that as an admissions officer, you're looking for student volunteers to lead those tours. You're training them. You're hoping that they're more or less following the script that you kind of have set forth for them. And so if you're looking to hear something other than the sort of some of the more approved things, then talking to students on campus can be a great way to do that. Um, You mentioned uh, sort of online and calling. How do you go about arranging these visits? 
Pretty much everything is online these days. So if you go to any school's admission website, there's usually an option to click visit. And from there, you'll find tours, information sessions. You might also find some regional information sessions. If you can't make it out to a campus that's far away, there are often regional or high school visits happening. Um, You just sign up. I recommend it's the student who signs up rather than the parent. Good for everything to be in the student's name. If you're taking a little brother or little sister who's maybe a ninth or 10th grader, I encourage you to go ahead and sign them up for that as well, just so they have an official visit logged with the university in case they decide they want to apply there later. Um, If you need to reach out for any extra things, like you want the class visit, you want to talk to a faculty member, you should just call the admission office directly. I recommend that. That's usually the best way to get an actual human on the phone and help them, or they will help you set something up on campus. So it's really just about reaching out. And I do encourage, again, for all of this to go through the student rather than through the parents. Yeah, whenever possible, and especially given that most of what you do is online, it should be relatively easy for the student to at least be part of the process of making these plans to go and visit schools. Uh, I know that um, giving your student the power to plan that means that they are then going to also take kind of more ownership of the process. They should take more ownership of the process. So there's something there to consider. Any special tips that you would offer to families as they are embarking on uh, either their first college visit or their first big five colleges in three days or four days kind of thing? Yeah, and I'll echo some of the tips that that Elise is going to share in that blog post. It's really about just being present, um, really placing yourself towards the front of a tour line, getting in on the small group, um, asking questions. And when I say ask questions, I primarily mean the student, not the parent. Um, I think that I think parents, you can chime in when you want to or have an important question, but I think it's best for you to really just observe your student and encourage them to ask questions, see how they're feeling in the environment, if they seem to be happy. Um, I also encourage you to take notes, observations you make of the college or anecdotes you pick up or specific examples can help you make a decision about a school, but also come in handy later when you might be writing a supplemental essay that is college-specific. Those are always handy. Um, And then my own personal note, just from a pet peeve of mine when I used to give these information sessions at USC, is just to be on good behavior. Uh, Remember, the person who's doing that presentation could very likely be reading your application at some point. Um, So it's good to make a good impression, to be engaged, present, to put away your phone. That's for parents and students. I definitely have had some parents who... Mm -hmm through an entire information session looking at their iPhone. Um, So I do recommend you just be very present. Talk to the presenter afterwards. If you have additional questions, talk to them. Ask some more personalized, specific questions. You wouldn't just be able to look up online. Um, And that can make a good impression. I definitely met students in information sessions and later came across their application. And because they'd made a good impression in the information session, that did have a positive impact on their application. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're not constantly being watched, but I do think it is important to note that when you're at an information session, that is an admissions officer giving it, and you do want to be on your best behavior because uh, these are decision makers and you want them to. It's like when you interview for a new job and if you treat the person who you see in reception terribly, they're going to go back there and let the person know who is interviewing you that that was not, that you're not such a great person. It's the same basic idea. You want to be on your best behavior behavior while you're there. Um, I think some other tips that I would add is that sometimes if it's a big enough visit day where you've got lots of people and lots of tours going out, you might consider having parents and students go on separate tours and kind of come back together and compare notes on that. That's especially helpful if you as a parent would like to ask a bunch of questions and maybe your child will be more likely to ask questions if you're not there or at least more likely to kind of form his or her own own impressions on um, what the school is like. So that might be good advice for some families and totally unnecessary advice for others. You decide which family uh, that is more likely to apply to if that applies to you or not. Um, And one other thing that I find that families aren't always doing that or students aren't always doing because it is the student's process that I wish they would is taking notes or um, doing those notes immediately when you're done. You know, if you're not taking notes during, at the very least, summing up your take on the school when uh, right when you've finished your visit for the day, because if you wait too long, they all do start to blend together and you might forget what that interesting, cool program 
program was at that one school, you might start to think that it was actually at a different school. Whereas if you kind of sit down and jot those notes right away, um, it'll be, uh, you'll do a better job of kind of keeping track of, of your actual impressions. Um, any last minute tips or uh, any other thoughts that you wanted to share but haven't had a chance to yet? Um, no, I'll mention that one question that I get from parents a lot is what should we be looking for on the tour? And that is an impossible to answer question. <laughs> I think that it's really about what's important to the student, what's important to the family, ask questions based on that. So, for example, if you know that you really love small classes, you want a lot of professor access, instead of just nodding along when the tour guide says we have a 26 to 1 student-to-teacher ratio, which sounds good, maybe you want to raise your hand and say, when you were a freshman, how big were each of your classes? Mm. So just think of what you specifically want, what's important for you, tailor the questions to you, because this is really the one time you're going to get this in-person line of questioning with a current student or an admission person. So just make the most of it and kind of go away from the cookie-cutter questions that you might see in some of the college guide books and just go with what's important for you. Right, exactly. You do sometimes wonder when people ask questions if that's actually something they care about or something that they read that they should ask. So that's great advice. Yes, good point. (laughs) All right, well, thank you so much, Emily. I really appreciate you being here today. All right, thanks, Beth. Take care. All right, uh, and I want to thank all of my guests, Kathy and Megan. And uh, next week's show is going to be great. I'm back. Uh, That's not why it's going to be great, but I'm excited to be back. We're going to be doing more on college visits. Uh, We're going to be focusing on overnight visits and how those can be helpful in better understanding uh, what the college is all about and its fit. Uh, Also, location, location, location. We talk a lot to students about where do you want to be? And one element of that is the whole concept of a school that's in an urban setting versus a suburban setting versus a rural setting. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what each of those could add uh, to a college and, you know, what you might think about uh, about those options for yourself. We're also going to be doing a two-part series, and we're going to start it next week, on college finance myth-busting. Lots and lots of myths out there related to uh, college finance, and we're going to try to tackle as many as possible in a two-part series. If you have questions, we do, at least once a month, uh, we do uh, a whole segment or two on answering listener questions. So, And a lot of times those questions really spark ideas for segments for us. So send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. I mentioned at the start of the segment that we have done a lot of segments on college visits. We have done a lot of segments on a lot of different things. So visit our archives. Um, You can get to them through the Voice America site. We also have the show available for free download on iTunes. So that's another great uh, place. We also have a great blog. Uh, You can find that at blog.getintocollege.com. We're on Pinterest. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, We are on Facebook. We love it when you like us on Facebook. We love it when you rate our show on iTunes. Um, We're always looking for more of those. Uh, I wrote a series recently. I completed, I think it was an eight or nine part series for the Huffington Post. Uh, Who gets into Harvard? So if you're interested in that, if you do a Google search, who gets into Harvard, Elizabeth Heaton, Huffington Post, you should be able to get the first in that series and click through to the rest from there. So check it out. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.